and it's okay not to be okay. One in five adults experience mental illness. One in five. No one can ever use your mental illness against you. We have to have trust yeah. that people can help. I just got a grasp on it in the past year because I've been dealing with anxiety my whole life, so I started doing therapy for it. I think the most important thing I got is that everything is connected. My mom has dealt with anxiety, so a lot of times stuff is within your family, but if you never named it, if you didn't... And then it's up to us to show compassion, to reach out, to connect, help folks find the hope and the support they need. Hey everybody and welcome back to the Therapy Podcast. This is episode 5 of season 2. Let's talk about sex. So whether you believe it or not, sex has a huge impact on our overall mental health and well-being. Um, in terms of sexual trauma, all the way down to how happy and how high our self-esteem is. So I have a very special guest today. I'm so excited to bring to you a sex therapist, an African-American sex therapist and psychiatrist. Um, Her name is Dr. Natalia Fuller. So Dr. Natalia Fuller is a participant in an interview series that I'm doing the entire month of July. So every Thursday, I'm going to bring a different professional who is going to talk to you about um, the work that they do and how the work that they do helps to improve overall mental health for their clients in one capacity or the other. And so without further ado, let's jump into the show for today. Okay, everybody. So I wanted to invite our special guest today, Dr. Natalia Fuller. Um, I was really excited when we first connected on Instagram, actually, because at one point I thought I wanted to go to school to study sex therapy, but that never happened. Um, so to <laughs> see someone who looks like us, who is part of the African-American community in that field, um, was really exciting for me. So I'm excited to have her on the show today, so I'm going to allow her to introduce herself and tell us more about what she does. Thank you so much for having me, one. And you should have went to school. We need more Black women sex <laughs> therapists. <laughs> um, hi, everyone. I am Dr. Natalia Fuller. I'm a medical doctor. My specialty is psychiatry, and I'm also a licensed sex therapist. So I deal with issues related to gender, sexuality, uh, sexual problems, people that have erectile dysfunction, sexual trauma. Um, I look at the past and I help people resolve their issues and their problems with orgasms. Which is amazing because I will say, and I wonder if people might have the same bias. So one thing that I struggled with when deciding if I wanted to go to school for it was, I don't want to talk about the, the sexual dysfunction piece. Because um, <laughs> I was more so interested in the trauma side, although right. now, you know, further in my career, I understand how they connect. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also understand how like some people can think that you know one does not relate to the other right and no um, you know the funny thing is is you can kind of decide because I know quite a few sex therapists um, that don't like to deal with men so okay. you don't have to do the erectile dysfunction so it's really it, it's, it's very open you can honestly decide you know what path you want to take uh, once you complete the program and I know plenty of sex therapists that you know they decide you know I'm just going to do women only and that's completely okay in your choice okay so you see both men and women in your in your work yes I see both men and women um, just because at the hospital most of my patients are men. And okay. so when I started doing sex therapy, um, a lot of men were coming to me. It wasn't that I was really open to men at first. I didn't <laughs> came who wanted the help, but I was really surprised that it was mostly men seeking the help first. So even now, um, most of my clients are men. Wow. That's amazing though. Cause I mean, it's always great when we can hear that men are actually going to seek help. Um, because I know that sometimes it's just more common for women to say when right is wrong oh once their penis stops working honey they're, they're trying to figure <laughs> out a solution to that <laughs> they're not playing no games when it comes to that and then we what happens is we end up building into the trauma um and things that's happened in the past but usually they're just coming because they're dealing with erectile dysfunction and they're like hey i need some viagra i need to figure out what's going on <laughs> so do you think that that's for some of them is like a good lead-in into kind of exploring other areas of their life through counseling and therapy 
That's what I like to do because a lot of my clients, like I said, are uh, black males. And I realized that just like a lot of black females um, have experienced trauma or uh, sexual assault or molestation. And I realized that a lot of men, too, have a lot of underlining issues. And it wasn't just the erectile dysfunction. It was more so they were in their own heads and there was deeper issues as to why they weren't able to have an orgasm or as to why they weren't able to have longer erections. Okay, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense, actually. So one of my first questions for you, since you brought that up, is sexual trauma. So can you kind of define what sexual trauma is for us? So um, sexual trauma is pretty much sexual violence. So typically um, here in the U.S., unfortunately, these are CDC numbers. um, One in five women in the U.S. are either raped or sexually assaulted. And typically it's by someone that they know. So sexual trauma can be anywhere from uh, sexual violence, um, rape, uh, penetration. It can be um, someone attacking you um, and sexual assault, in a sense, molestation, Um, Anything to do with sex and someone uh, forcing you to do something that you don't want to do uh, would be considered sexual trauma. Understood. And so can you can we talk a little bit about um, rape, I guess, in the sense that most people consider it and then also that idea of corrosion, because I think sometimes people... You know, they feel like they say no or they're suggest. you know what I mean? Like they're suggestive Mm -hmm. and they kind of get led into doing so. Right. Um, And how can they speak up about that? Because it is still a form of of rape, essentially. Yes. Oh, yes. Sexual Sexual coercion is a tactic. It's um, trickery. It's emotional force. Um, And pretty much you're trying to get, you're pressuring someone to agree to sex. So it can be as simple as encouraging a male or female, because it can go Mm -hmm. either way. Um, You're out getting drinks. And then all of a sudden someone says, oh, get some more drinks. Or it's like they're trying to get you drunk. Yeah. Or, you know, even in a relationship, people are really surprised that sexual trauma and (laughs) coercion can happen in a relationship. Because I think that, especially in this day and age, they feel that if you're in a relationship, that you have to have sex. So, a male or female can say, You're my husband or my wife, you're my girlfriend, you're supposed to have sex with me. Well, being in a relationship with someone does not give them a right to your body. If you are having sex because you're constantly being reminded by your significant other that is their job or their expectation, that is also sexual coercion. So it's it's manipulating um, and and it can. It's a form of abuse. And I'm glad you said that, you know, about being in a relationship, because I think another thing that people don't realize is that um, even just this idea of marital rape. And for a long time, it was legal in a lot of different states. Yes, it was. You're absolutely right. And it's still legal in other countries where, you know, you and and in some religions, like you better not, you dare, you better not say that you're not willing to sleep with your husband or your wife, you know, like that is a part of your duty. And so how would you say or how would you encourage someone to maybe like speak about the experience or kind of even just get um, some insight about the experience, especially when they're dating and they're kind of dealing with the um, corrosion? Like, let's say if we're watching TV and just because you pay for a date, maybe you're assuming that I should sleep with you or, um, you know, just because you wrapped your arm around me while we're watching Netflix is supposed to lead to sex. And I think sometimes when people say no or, oh, no, we're not sleeping together tonight. Somehow another person can sometimes still keep making suggestive mm-hmm, things mm-hmm. and then you eventually find yourself saying yes or find yourself saying, oh, okay, um, how can we empower people to kind of like still use their voice and kind of be like you did say no and this person did still violate and continue to try to manipulate mm-hmm. you to kind of do what it is that they wanted you to do. Um, if it's happened, I think definitely reach out to someone you trust. Um, it's it's common to think that you don't talk about your rape or your sexual assault 
Um, but you can't heal when you're avoiding the truth. Mm-hmm. So hiding only kind of adds like the feeling of shame. And I know it's really scary. I talk to my patients about this all the time because it's really scary for them to open up. But honestly, once you're ready, it really helps you free, help you to be free and it helps you to heal. So just make sure you're selective and who you decide to tell, um, you know, and eventually, hopefully, you know, build up the courage to talk to a therapist or they have rape crisis hotlines. And then also a lot of times after it happens, people kind of feel this sense of like helplessness and isolation and, you know, it makes them feel powerless and really vulnerable. So it's really important to remind yourself that you have the strength and you have coping skills that you can use to get through those tough times, but you have to reclaim that sense of power. And so, you know, volunteering your time to other people that this has happened to can help heal. Um, reaching out to a friend in need that might have went through the same thing. Um, you know, just really joining a support group. I always tell my clients, join a support group, you know, of other people that have, that are survivors. You know, I don't like to call them victims. I like to call them rape or sexual abuse survivors. And I think going to support group can definitely help with the feelings of guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. And then another thing that people don't realize is you're going to have those flashbacks and you're going to have upsetting memories. Yeah. And trying to anticipate and prepare for those triggers is hard um, because there's probably going to be things that are going to remind you of the person that violated you. And so kind of realizing your body and your emotions and giving yourself kind of clues as to when you're going to feel unsafe and uneasy. And it's really hard to, to, to tell people, you know, especially when dating, like, oh, well, don't go over a guy's house the first date. And these are the things, you know, you read articles about steps to prevent you from getting raped. Right. And I hate those articles because when yes. you like someone, yeah, I mean, I'm like, really? Like, prevent rape? How about you just, the, that person does not rape Doesn't rape you, exactly. Because it puts too much accountability on the survivor. Exactly. And we're not really holding the perpetrator um, accountable, accountable for their absolutely. action. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. So, you know, I just tell women, I think that's why it's so important to one, teach our sons about rape. Because I remember a couple of years ago, I read this article um, that they were doing across college campuses in the U.S. And they were just asking men simple questions like, oh, if your girlfriend's drunk, should you still sleep with her? If your girlfriend says no, she doesn't want to have yourself on her. And you would be surprised the ages of 18 to 21, they were answering yes to these questions. Like they thought it was okay that if their girlfriend was drunk to still sleep with her and they thought it was okay to pretty much force their girlfriend to have sex with them. They did not see that as rape. So there's an issue with how we're raising our sons. And I'm glad that you actually brought that up because I was going to say that too. How, because I, you know, a lot of times people already have a, a mindset that they're kind of just married to. Right. So how do we actually educate or what do we tell men and even women too who perpetrate, you know, this behavior is a manipulation tactic. This behavior is coercion and you are violating someone. Well, I think honestly, that starts almost like an adolescence, you know, talking to males and females about these topics because and the parents have to do it because they're not doing it in school anymore. Like sex education is pretty much non-existent in most states. Um, they don't feel like it's their job anymore to teach these children about it. And the parents aren't doing it. And so I think the parents have a responsibility when your children get a certain age and you talk to them about sex, which parents aren't really doing anymore either. Their kids are learning it from music videos and BET and HBO and, you know, stuff that they see online, social media. And so I think that there's a conversation that needs to be had to these young people about um, these these topics when they first start dating and when they get into porn because porn watching pornography at a young age really forces these ideals of sexual assault and sexual trauma because Mm -hmm. when you're that young watching porn and you see men and women being rough and you know you're like okay this is how it's supposed to be like she's supposed to get tied up and it's supposed to be kind of against her will or she's supposed to be saying no that's where that whole no means yes type of thing i feel yeah. like that is really driven on by porn and i agree with you there because i know um so last year i i had first started working with elementary age kids 
and I was placed into a elementary school in Washington D.C. And oh, oh, really? Yeah, I'm from D.C. originally. Yeah, oh, that's amazing. What area? Oh gosh, so my grandfather lives over in Adams Morgan. So okay. I all over Minnesota Avenue. I got family on that southeast, southwest, everywhere. Oh, so you're definitely familiar then with the area yeah. as a whole. Awesome. Okay, but yeah, so my entire career has been in Ward Eight. So okay. Um, so I'm in, I'm in Southeast now, um, working. And so I never realized it's like, you hear about it, but mm-hmm. being in the school, elementary school at that every single day, I wasn't realizing how young children were exploring sex. Right. And then, like you said, they're, they're acting out things that they are seeing, yes. which causes them to be rough, which causes them to talk to each other in such demeaning ways. Um, and it's kind of like, how do we get parents back to, you know, monitoring and teaching them the importance? Because I think it just, when they start that young, it's, it definitely gets scary. Yeah. And because they know about it. You know, mm-hmm. I remember when my brother was like eight years old, um, I remember him coming to me and saying, it's like a 19 year difference between my brother and I. Okay. Um, and he, he was coming to me and he was like, oh, what's sex? And I was like, what? <laughs> And he had seen it on a bathroom stall. And, oh, wow. you know, I remember telling my parents, I was the one freaking out. I remember, like, telling my parents, like, oh, my God, like, he's already asking what sex is because somebody wrote it on the bathroom stall. And he was in elementary school. So I'm like, okay, these elementary school students are already learning, you know, at a very young age what it is. And so mm-hmm. I encourage parents to have these conversations, especially when you know your child is watching porn. And parents know, you know, there's signs that they, you know, and kids have cell phones. I mean, (laughs) checking your children's cell phones. So you have to talk to your kids about sexual abuse. You have to talk to them about sexual trauma. And you really have to explain to them what a healthy and non-healthy relationship when it comes to sex is. And so that makes me want to ask you, too, because we like working in the field and things like that, we know it's happening super young. And I know a lot of parents, a lot of times, like, I don't want to talk about my kids, talk to my kids about sex too soon, but because they're being exposed to it at school Mm -hmm. or through the media and everything else, do you think there's a such thing as talking about sex too young? Absolutely not. There, um, I'm not a parent, but I, I remember my mom having conversations with me at a very young age about it. And I think you can start off with like good touch and bad touch. Yeah. So when they're toddlers, you know, of course, you don't have to talk to them about sex when they're toddlers. But by the age of three, you should already, even before that, when they can understand yes and no, you <laughs> should be talking to them about good touch and bad touch. You know, things like, oh, you know, no one should be touching you in your private area, stuff like that. You know, make sure that they they understand what you're saying, get down on their level. But once they hit, oh, my gosh, I want to say even nine, ten I mean, you have to have these conversations to them about sex. Like, you just have to. Because in my mind, would you rather your child learn it from you and learn it the right way? Yeah. Or learn it from another child who has possibly seen things that you would never want your child to see? So there's there's so many books now about sex um, that you can get for your child. If, if you're having trouble, there's websites. Literally, you can Google how to talk to your child about sex. And there's a ton of websites they give great pointers. Um, I'm probably going to do a YouTube video about it soon. Oh, cool. Um, I just started a YouTube channel, so I'm probably going to do a video about that soon. Oh, yes. Let but... me know so I can add it in the show notes. So we can Absolutely. get you some <laughs> Yes. But I think just when you realize that your child um, is maybe watching porn or your child is browsing things that they probably shouldn't be browsing or even if they're on social media mm-hmm. it's, it's time to talk to your child about sex honestly the the younger the better and like I said start off with good touch first bad touch and then just explain to them and you don't have to get too explicit but you can at least explain to them like you know it's something that they should possibly wait you know until they are emotionally ready for it because parents sometimes leave out the emotional aspect of sex and how emotional it can be and so just really you know you know your child best really just get on their level and explain to them the bare basics and they're gonna have questions it's gonna be awkward they're gonna have questions and then you can just proceed from there 
And so, and the other thing about saying that too is like when you open that door for your children, you'll be surprised at how much they gonna come tell you, like yep. how much they already know. Um, yes. Which made me think about one question too: is how important do you think it is for parents to actually use proper terms such as saying penis and actually saying vagina when talking to their kids about good touch, bad touch? Um, because you know a lot of times we have so many nicknames for it that yes. when corrosion comes into play sometimes I think from um, the sexual assault a sexual assault standpoint of like older people manipulating children and things like that mm-hmm. you know sometimes there can be confusion just ba- for a child just based on language you're absolutely right um, I think from what I've seen my personal my experience my personal experience and my from an educational standpoint I've always thought that it's best to use the word penis and vagina. Um, Now, only because I feel like any other word is a bit more vulgar, especially for their age. That's true. Um, (laughs) But you can, and also this is a cultural thing too, I think that you can explain to your child though as well that there are other terms for it that we just don't use. You know, that older people might use so let them be aware that there are other terms out there I think that's very important um but I don't even know what the kids nowadays are saying (laughs) like I don't even know what word because I'm so used to just saying penis and vagina I don't even know what other words they could possibly use but um I do think it's important to to make them aware that there are other terms out there but more important how they're going to feel if someone is trying to touch them in an inappropriate way and how to be prepared and stand firm in saying no because you know when we were doing like sexual assault training that was one thing that the um, counselor was speaking about was how they typically pry on kids that come from bad homes yep. or the mother and father are split up and they typically pick a lot of times like the shy kids where they might say no but it's like a little soft no but then if you have a child that's like no don't touch me it'll kind of like freak them out Groomers know exactly what they're doing. They know who they're yes. looking for. Yes. Um, I wish you could see like I was shaking my head over here because my my dissertation is actually on sex trafficking and how the grooming tactics lead to that. Um, oh, wow. That's a good topic. So thank you. And so like that literally, you know, I'm just so indulged in that world. But you're right. It's kind of like they the way that they pray on our children they're looking Mm -hmm. for like those really small things like you said or even children who don't understand like if I'm always calling it or if mommy's always calling it my poo poo or whatever because I'm you know I'm only six right and someone calls it something else I don't know to tell mommy that you touched my poo poo because I've always known it is my poo poo and not what you said exactly you're exactly right you are exactly right and that's why a lot of times it's it's sad, but it is typically most children that are molested. It is typically even rape. It's typically 75 to 80% of times people that they know. It's someone that they know. And that's for all ages, right? And that is across the board. And so, and I don't want to, and it's so funny because we did, we had an agenda and I, we was getting so deep into this that I also <laughs> want to be respectful of your time. Um, so I'm going to switch gears a little bit. And one thing that I definitely wanted to talk to you about was how can women um, explore their sexuality safely and kind of getting, um, being confident and wanting to explore their sexuality, knowing mm-hmm. that that double standard exists. Um, you know what, in this day and age, I feel like the stereotype is getting smaller and smaller, um, especially when it comes to women exploring their sexuality. And I think it's also dependent on, um, if you're already in a relationship or not in a relationship, because I know I have a couple of clients that are in a relationship and they're 30 something and they're just now trying to explore their sexuality, which is perfectly fine. I think that when you, whatever age you enter into, um, you should be comfortable in your own skin. And there's never a wrong or right time to experiment. If you decide that you're 50 years old and you want to have some certain experiences, I think you should go for it. Um, But I don't think you should feel ever pressured Mm -hmm. or you're validating 
for any type of reason. I think it really should just be because you want to explore and because you're curious. So um, when you say explore sexuality, are you talking about, like, give me an example. Do you, are you talking about women that might be interested in um, other women or interested in maybe exploring threesomes? Like what do Um, you have it? So I would say all of it. (laughs) Okay. um, But one direct question that I did get um, from a listener um, in preparing for this episode is they wanted to know about, you know, is it okay to normalize bringing toys in the bedroom, for instance, and introducing toys? Absolutely. Sorry, (laughs) let you finish. But go ahead. You said, yeah, toys and what else? No, just normalizing that in the bedroom, being able to introduce that to a partner and being okay with it. You know what? It's so funny because... um, I had did on my mom body sex page on Instagram, how um, it's okay guys. Like sex toys does not take away from your masculinity for men, because I found that men don't like sex toys. Okay. And I think that for, for, for anything that you're not uncomfortable with, um, it can be a little bit, I guess, scary at first to use toys because men are like, okay, well, where is this going? Or where, what you about to do with that? But the thing is, <laughs> is like, there's actually mental health benefits of using sex toys on a regular basis. Really? Oh, educate yes. <laughs> So, like, exploring is healthy. Like, people forget exploring sexual pleasure. That enhances your mental and emotional uh, health. So, it can help your woman receive an orgasm. There are sex toys for men um, because there are certain areas of men body that they they receive pleasure so women can use the toys on men and he might have an orgasm Um, it's a confidence boost because anytime you you are engaging in sexual pleasure um, you're gonna feel that adventurous side you're gonna feel that confidence and there's endorphins that are released that hype in that so you're gonna have a higher self-esteem um, so, and there's so many different toys. That's the thing. So yeah. if your partner is feeling kind of nervous about using the toy, I would say start with something small. And I usually tell my clients, start with like a little vibrator. They have like the little vibrator nuggets. They're like really small, um, maybe like three inches, if that, maybe two inches. And I tell women, I said, let him use it on you. Let him get creative, give it to him and just say, babe, use this on me in any way you see fit. So let him be the adventurous one. Let him kind of explore because that's kind of kind of reduce his anxiety. And then once he sees that you're having pleasure from it, oh, his self-esteem, honey, is going to go through the roof. (laughs) And it's funny, right, when you think about, you know, sex is something that people get pleasure from, but it's also something that is tied to so much anxiety. Absolutely. It absolutely is. So you got to start small because I think if you bring out the whips and chains and... (laughs) I mean, he might run away. Don't start off Fifty Shades of Grey yet. Just work your way up. And I think a really, really fun date and getting your partner, whether it's a man or a woman, to explore sex toys is to go to a sex shop together. Go together. Okay. I think. And when you say sex, when you say sex shop, would you say that they should actually look for one that's kind of like all inclusive, or it's kind of like I know everything is closed right now. Um, but you know, like when, cause I think what Spencer's has stuff, but then people are used to kind of like, you know, the websites where it's like, we'll send it in a discreet box or. Right. Right. Well, um, well, yeah, well here in Atlanta, it we're like wide open right now. So the, the, uh, sex places are open. The okay. sex shops are open. Um, now the ones here, at least in Atlanta that I've been to, they, they're really good at being for women and men. Oh, so they text, yeah, they have like everything. They have games, they have cars, they have lingerie. And so that's why I always tell my um, clients, I'm like, go there with your partner. Let them pick out some lingerie or pick out a sex toy together. Because if you're wide open to it and they're a little bit nervous, it's going to make them feel a little bit more comfortable if they at least have um, some leeway into what type of sex toys you're picking out. Or start with a game. A game, a card game is a great way. Let him pick out some lingerie. Let him pick out some oil, some rubbing oil, and just kind of slowly creep your way into other things. I was going to say, it's almost like a a different form of intimacy, like doing things to kind of help, like you said, build your confidence to actually lead up to the act of sex, right? Exactly. 
we're still exploring each other and being intimate through cards, through dice or whatever it is that you choose to. And to it's supposed it. to be fun. You know, sex, I think people sometimes forget sex is supposed to be fun. It's not supposed to be, I mean, it's going to be a little work, you know, lose some weight, <laughs> get some calories, burn some calories, but it's supposed to be fun. So if you realize in your sex life that you're not laughing, you're not having that intimacy, hmm. you're not having fun, you can have conversations during sex. I mean, there's so much to explore. I honestly sometimes don't know how people get bored because there's <laughs> so much that you can do. But I think people get bored because they stay inside. They're scared to explore um, outside of their comfort zone or they're they're scared to do what they've never done before. Like the unknown seems really, really scary and risky. And I'm not talking about being wild. I'm just talking about little tiny things. Like I I have um, a couple right now that have been married for 20 years. And do you know that they've never even had sex in the kitchen? They've never had sex oh, wow. uh, in the laundry room. They've never had 20 sex 20 years is a long time. I we know. We through the like, whole house. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you guys doing? And it was just outside of their comfort zone. For them, okay. having sex was in the hotel room or just in the bedroom. And I'm like, guys, this is why, you know, after 20 years, you're feeling bored. Like, there's a lot of things that you haven't tried. Just cook together. Start with intimacy. Start with the basics. Start with kissing each other on the neck. I tell people all the time, like, small little gestures, you know, send them a sexy text, slip them a note, you know, things like that. Quickies. People forget quickies are a great, great way to revitalize your sex life. Explain that a little bit. How how so with quickies? So quickies um from a medical standpoint not only do they release a great deal of um endorphins <laughs> uh, which is great of course for your body and just emotionally but i think with quickies it's spontaneous okay. and i know one of the things you wanted to talk about was like how to revitalize your sex life after having a baby yeah that was and, mm-hmm. yes <laughs> so that is one way i always tell my patients Uh, or clients that a quickie is it's surprising because let's say you're in the kitchen and and your man just comes up behind you and he starts caressing whatever favorite part of your body type that you have a body part and then he just lifts up your skirt and just proceeds to do what you like him to do and then it lasts like two minutes and then he's off to work like you're going to feel that rush. Mm-hmm. You're going to feel that endorphin rush and you're going to want more later on. So now you've just revitalized your sex life because now you're like, oh my God, you're thinking about it. Like, oh, that was so good. It was so quick. I want more later on. Which is really smart for people too. Cause it can help build that desire back up. Um, exactly. So with regards to um, getting back to sex after a baby, it was, it was funny when it came up because I got to hear it from, um the dad side and the mom side right so mm-hmm. from dad he's like i waited my six weeks <laughs> you know he's like oh, and he no. said he said right before the baby he said they were having sex all the time because she was like no this baby's coming out of here right and he said but he was like right. we were having so much sex he was like but that does not prepare you to not get in any at all right so he's like oh. i was being respectful we made it through the six weeks and he's like, now she's just not interested. Um, and yes. for her, she was, you know, she has admitted that um, there's been some postpartum. So she said not to the extreme, mm-hmm. but she was like, with regards to sex as a whole, she's like, she just doesn't feel like it. Right. And that happens. That's completely normal. Um, I don't have a lot of patients that have just recently had a baby but I've had friends that have dealt with postpartum and not wanting to have sex afterwards and their husband's kind of trying to like guilt trip Mm -hmm. them and so the advice I will always give them is from a man and a woman you have to remember like mothers are going to feel overwhelmed after they have a baby and for the women I think sometimes they can judge the fathers for the sexual urges um, because they feel like, okay, well, he's not understanding where I'm coming from. I just pushed out a nine yeah. pound baby. Do you really think that I'm going <laughs> to want to have some sex after that? And so that in return leaves them feeling the men feeling rejected and shame for their desires. And then you, so you have this constant battle. And so the intimacy dissolves because now one person wants to have sex and the other person doesn't. Okay. So what I found first and foremost, you have to do is you both have to have compassion. As a woman, we have to understand that, you know, men, they have sexual urges. Mm -hmm. 
as the men need to understand from a woman's standpoint that our body and our hormones have just completely did a 360 after we had a baby. So both parties have to turn on the compassion. They have to, you need to ask your partner or spouse to share his sexual feelings or lack thereof because some somebody might have, you know, not have any sexual mm-hmm. feelings mm-hmm. and then really empathize with those sexual feelings and just first have a, you know, a open dialogue, have communication because I think there's always a misunderstanding um, and lack of communication when it comes to sex, especially sex after pregnancy. And especially if she had like stitches and, you know, there's a lot that goes on to having a baby that I think a lot of men do not realize. (laughs) They think that we just pop out that baby and then we all good. No, emotionally, physically, mentally. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different um, components. And it's new for the mom too, right? Because I mean, especially when it's your first baby, all those changes, he's navigating. Breastfeeding. Yeah. Like men don't understand. So, I mean, and just in addition to the sex, you know, I think having a, conversation about what other shared experience encourage their connection and you know how their intimacy depends on teamwork and how they can really cultivate that together and also learning to role play and going back and tying it back into what I said earlier like the little small gestures him giving her kisses them having a staycation I think that's so important a couple months after you have the baby is to just kind of get away the two of you guys even if you're in the same city just you know, having the grandparents babysit and just getting a hotel and just getting out the house and just doing something that is not in your regular routine. Oh my God, that makes such a big difference. Sending sexy text messages, um, even slipping them notes, like the art of writing letters and it stuff has like to come that. Back. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I seen this husband one time when we were in um, sex therapy, you know, his wife wasn't feeling sexy. She had just got through menopause and she, her, you know, changes in your body. And I remember he wrote her this letter and it was just like him just being compassionate about what she was going through and why she wasn't wanting to have sex. And I mean, that turned her on. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. And then cultivating time alone. I think when you're a new mom and you're a new dad, it's so much baby, baby, you know, changing diapers having to spend so much time together that people forget for their own mental health that you have to get away mm-hmm. and take some time to yourself I think that too, oh, I'm and, sorry go ahead oh no no that's I was gonna say that. I think too like when they're trying to come up with ideas that might be a good time to tap into their partner's love language that's the first thing that came to mind Absolutely. when you said writing letters so like if I'm a word it's an affirmation person I would love a letter I would love a little note here and yeah. there or a gift a push gift. <laughs> Everybody knows about a push gift. <laughs> right, right, right. A car preferably. <laughs> she was like, make this worth it. Right. But yeah, definitely. That is such a good point. Definitely tapping into uh, your partner's love language because we all have different love languages. And the issue is typically we love in our yes. own love yes. language and we expect our partner to love us in that love language and that's just not how it works they have their own love language you tap into their love language they tap into your yeah, love and language. then we're as we're pouring you're also getting full at the same time and no one's cup is running empty but you're right that is the biggest thing i think like people always love within their own love language yep you're absolutely right that is correct so the last area and i saved this for last because um it was very interesting to me, and I was like, dang, this this probably goes, like, really, really deep. Um, I, I feel like, as a whole, a lot, there's already a misconception um, with adult ADHD. Can adults have ADHD? Mm-hmm. Is this even a real diagnosis? Um, and so, mm-hmm. we think about what ADHD even is as a whole. Um, can we talk about, like, how ADHD can disrupt or ruin romance? <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know what? ADHD in adulthood is a lot of times swept under the rug. So that kudos to you, because that's actually a really good topic that I don't hear a lot of people talk about. Um, And yes, you can have ADHD as an adult. Um, Typically, it gets better because people that have it as an adult have dealt with it in Mm -hmm. childhood. So it does typically as the years go on, um, it gets better. But for those who don't know, ADHD is Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and they 
typically have difficulties paying attention, um, sometimes impulsive behaviors. There's actually not a lot of studies on ADHD and sexuality because they say that it's kind of hard to measure in people with ADHD. But um, what I've seen um, from personal experience and just being in the medical field is that sometimes due to their condition, they can either have what we call hypersexuality, where they have a usually high sex Mm -hmm. drive, or they have hyposexuality, which is a loss in interest in sex. And so um, typically it's either one or the other um, with people with ADHD. And a lot of the solutions that I give to my patients, because I don't think that you necessarily have to be on medication for ADHD. Um, I'm, I'm starting to get more and more into holistic medicine for a lot of my patients and clients just because they've been on medication like all their lives. And I don't think that that's healthy to an extent. Um, And so I I like to tell some of my patients that have ADHD or have either hypersexuality or hyposexuality um, is to try new positions. Because there's so many, I mean, there's th- there's thousands of positions out there. And I've realized like a lot of people have not tried half of them. It's like, it's, it's missionary or it's doggy style. I'm like, okay, there's about 550 other positions that you can try. Um, so, you know, try new positions. Um, even the location of where you're having okay. sex can be fun. And explore, you know, different locations. Try techniques so there's less. Um, boredom because with people with ADHD they can get bored very easily especially those that are hypersexual okay. um, communicate with your partner about what you're feeling what you're going through compromise with your partner and you're going to have to prioritize your sex life whether it's even with hypersexuality you have to learn to prioritize understood so are there any sexual disorders that are frequently found in adults who have ADHD I ooh sexual disorders. Um, you know what? Not that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, only the main things I've seen that we consider like a disorder is the hypersexuality. Okay. For my patients, that's probably the main thing I've seen. Um, where it was pretty much they were becoming sex addicts. Mm-hmm. Um, like their urges were to the point where it was affecting their job and their relationship. And so what are some of the signs then that I would say that you are um, having, you know, being hypersexual? What are some signs where it's like, okay, maybe I should try to address this? Um, and when, like you said, it's impact, impacting work in other areas. Yeah, so it definitely, it'll start to impact their relationship, um, impact their work where they're leaving the job just to masturbate. Um, I've had situations where I've had patients uh, get fired because they were masturbating in the uh, parking lot um, of their car because it, it, they said the urge was so extreme that they had to release. Um, I've even had clients get caught masturbating in their office. Like they shut the office door, didn't lock it because they were so eager to watch porn um, on their cell phone and then they end up getting caught. So really compulsive sexual behavior um, usually occupied by like uh, sexual fantasies. Okay. They watch a lot of porn. Um, they typically will go to sex workers as well because they find that their spouse or significant other partner um, is unable to satisfy them. Um, and it's really just urges to the point where it's causing them distress. Like, even though they like to masturbate, they realize that they, they have an extreme problem because it's negatively affecting everything around them. And what can they do to kind of try to curb that or try to work toward you know, not letting it ruin other areas of their life? Well, one, they have to realize that they have a problem. And a lot of them do. A lot of them do. Most people with sex addiction do start to realize that they have a problem. Um, I would say you don't necessarily, I I think going to therapy is, is, is good, but therapy is not going to work unless you are willing to make changes. (laughs) So I always tell my patients, yeah, I, I always tell my patients, I'm glad you came here, but are you really ready to do the necessary work? Because you can come and speak to me all day and be open with me and then go back home mm-hmm. and do your uh, repetitive behavior that you're typically doing. So it really starts with you. So before you go to therapy, stop watching porn. And I mean completely. When you have a sex addiction, you don't need to watch porn anymore because it's it's only leading you down a path of destruction. So, you know, taking all those apps off, porn apps, not watching porn, 
um, starting to maybe read self-help books. There's really a lot of books um, on sex addiction. Um, I think reading is so essential to people that have it because they need to realize um, how dark it can become, um, how much money they can spend on the addiction. Um, And then, of course, therapy, uh, speaking to your loved ones, especially the person that you're in a relationship with. You definitely need to speak to them about what's going on because they might not understand and they might, you know, be uh, making the issue worse by saying like, oh, hey, we haven't had sex in a while. Why aren't you having sex with me or we need to, you know, do X, Y and Z. So just really being open and honest with them. Um, There's even inpatient treatment programs. They're actually very expensive, though, surprisingly. Um, So if you feel like you can't do it on your own, there are programs out there inpatient where you can go there and live. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's even an anonymous sex group. I think it's called SAA, Sexual Anonymous Association. I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that <laughs> if I'm saying that correctly. But it's like AA, but it's for sex. You're so, right. Sex uh, they actually have, yeah. And then uh, there's also cognitive behavioral therapy that you can do as well. So there's a lot of options out there. But I always tell people before you even go to therapy, do research on your own and figure out what habits. Got it for yourself that work and I like that too like just really encouraging people like what habits do you have like have you fully been able to identify how this is an issue for you um and then I love the type of examples you were given because what we find I think well just a lot of things in mental health as a whole um labeling happens so often and so we might oh, yes. tell somebody that they're being hypersexual when really they're just exploring their sexuality right or we might be Mm-hmm. Someone, you know, we're always trying to, to put a label on somebody and it causes people to get scared sometimes to stray away from things because we start to assume the worst. And so I guess I don't even know if there's a way to make that a, a perfect question, but how do we normalize talking about sex in a way where we are willing to learn more before? Because, you know, somebody could like having sex, but not be hypersexual. Right. Like it's not right. Like just like having sex with you, but I'm not, you know, hurting you. I'm not manipulating you. Um, there we go. Okay. I think my all came back. Sex drive. How, what is the difference mm-hmm. I guess, between like, is there such thing as a normal sex drive? Um, is there such like, does that impact compatibility with couples and, you know, just mislabeling people as hypersexual? Yeah. Well, I do see that a lot. Um, because people will just because their uh, spouse's libido is a lot higher than their libido, um, they'll say, Oh, well, they're a sex addict or they're a uh, hypersexual. Um, usually everyone likes to use the word sex addict, yeah. and so sex drive is the urge to seek satisfaction and sexual needs. And so, all a high sex drive is now, this is libido because sex drive is libido, okay. it's the same thing. Um, it's a person's overall sexual drive or desire for sexual activity. That is a libido. Okay. So it doesn't, just because you have a high sex drive, aka a high libido, does not mean that you have hyper sexual, sexuality, excuse me. It does not mean that. A lot of people have a high sex drive. You can like to have sex three times a day. When it becomes an issue is like I said, when it's it's affecting your okay. life, it's excessive, and everyone has different levels of excessive. But I think that when you are in a relationship and you have a partner, significant other, husband or wife, it's so important to talk about you all sex drive and your libido because it's going to be different. You're completely different mm-hmm. people, you know. So his sex drive might be lower than your sex drive. You know, there are individuals out there that want to have sex two three times a day um every day or every other day and there are some men you know that they can have sex once a week and be fine and it's not that they're cheating or they're not satisfied it's just their libido might be lower and in this day and age with the things that we're eating and putting in our bodies i have noticed that um the sex drive amongst millennials is drastically really Yes, yes. That's mm-hmm. really interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I have noticed that there's um a research out there. I can't remember the name of the doctor, but um they were doing research about sex drive on a plant-based diet and the mm-hmm. difference um between having a plant-based diet and like low libido, high libido as well as like erectile dysfunction. 
And I've just noticed that in general, like there's studies out there that millennials are just having less sex. And a lot of it's because we're really busy. And they say uh, some of it's too of what we're eating. So I think that there's, there's a conversation that has to be had. You know, you shouldn't address your partner and say, oh, well, you're a sex addict because you like to have sex three times a day. Mm -hmm. But figure out a way to compromise on how you guys can have more intimacy and better sex. Got it. So I want to say, I have really, really been enjoying this conversation. Like, sincerely, I'm so glad that you were able to accommodate me um, and participate. Um, and just Absolutely. This is when I think about every the different topics that we talk about. It seems like everything comes down to communication. Yes. Communicating with your children, <laughs> communicating with your partner, communicating about, you know, your needs in general, what you like and you dislike. Um and so, so that's one takeaway, right? Like we have to learn how to communicate. <laughs> um, but did you have Absolutely. anything, any final words that you wanted to share with the listeners really just about anything that we talked about or just sex in general? Um, I think you hit it. Um, I think when you said, you know, communication, we did talk about communication a lot today. And I think it's just so important. Yeah in this day and age and in our relationships to be completely honest about what you want, your expectations. Um, We're all humans. We all make mistakes. No one is perfect. And I think just to have a great sex life because women want sex just as much as men. I just feel like sometimes men are more straightforward. Definitely true. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, you know, our sex is more placed on emotional connection um, with sexual desire as women. So, I think that, you know, it's it, like you said, it's about the love language. Figure out your partner's sexual love language. And if you're having issues with that, you are more than welcome to schedule an appointment with me. I do offer online therapy. Um, right now, I'm really, really booked, but <laughs> I, um, I do offer that. So if you have any additional questions, I'm always open. Um, I can give, I'll give my email address that people can email me okay. at as well as my uh, YouTube and my Instagram where people can reach me at. But it's, it really boils down to communication with everything that we do. Got it. Like, but, and which is, is great. And I think that just, you know, sometimes we all feel that communication can be hard. Um, we worry about scaring people off, but it just, we just all have to kind of, I love to say like lean into our vulnerabilities a little bit more. Absolutely. If you scare somebody off that quickly, they didn't belong in your life. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. Yes. That is absolutely true. So again, I sincerely appreciate having you on here. Um, I hope that we can keep in touch. Um, And so thank you all for listening. Everything that Dr. Fuller has mentioned will be in the show notes. So I will add her YouTube channel so you guys can subscribe and learn more. I'll add her contact information just in case you have any more questions or want to schedule an appointment. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for having me. The topics were amazing. I appreciate you for asking me to do this because I've enjoyed it. Good, good. So you are the first of the um, series I'm doing for um, ment- for Minority Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, so, yes. Which is awesome. So guys, make sure you tune in next week as well. We're going to talk to a nurse next week just to kind of talk about um, how pain of Black people is oftentimes ignored in hospitals um, as well as possible racism that happens in the workplace there. So please come again. And until next time, live well, be well. Thanks, guys.